Welcome to the show. This is The Magician and the Fool podcast, episode number nine. And in this episode, we had the pleasure to talk with Mr. Edward Butler. Mr. Butler received his doctorate in 2004 from the New School for Social Research for his dissertation, The Metaphysics of Polytheism in Proclus, which is available from lulu.com, by the way. Since then, he has published steadily in academic journals and edited volumes, primarily on Platonism and the polytheistic philosophy of religion. His latest book, Essays on Plato, is available exclusively from Amazon.com. He has also pursued a parallel concentration in Egyptian religion, and his website hosts his Theological Encyclopedia of the Goddesses and Gods of the Ancient Egyptians, containing entries on over 150 Egyptian deities. He is also an associate editor of the independent academic journal Walking the Worlds, a biannual journal of polytheism and spirit work. Much more information about his work is available from the aforementioned site, henetology, H-E-N-A-D-O-L-O-G-Y, dot wordpress.com, and you can also find many of his essays on academia.edu. So... In today's episode, we will be discussing Neoplatonism with a heavy emphasis on Proclus, or as Edward put it, the fully worked out systematic Platonism that we get in its most elaborated form from Proclus and Damascius. So the works of Proclus, or Mr. Butler for that matter, aren't light reading. This is pretty heavy stuff. But for those willing to put in the effort and persevere, there is gold to be mined in their wisdom, for sure. Um, some of the concepts we discussed in this episode were really game-changing, and this is one you may have to listen to more than once. I've already listened to it a few times, and will need to continue listening to it to really get everything out of it that I, that I can. So yeah, it's a great interview. Just something to to mention here. I haven't quite mastered this whole audio editing thing. I went back to some old episodes and I noticed some of the audio can be kind of painful. Uh, for myself, I'm going to try to find a new location to record the interviews because the acoustics where I've been recording are terrible. And we're also working on getting Janice a decent mic, so hopefully that'll help as well. I think it's getting better, but I still don't have it where I want it. So thank you for bearing with us as we figure this all out. And speaking of audio problems, for one reason or another, our recording software didn't catch the first two minutes of the conversation, and which included our introductions. So the interview starts abruptly, mid-conversation. We were just getting warmed up, though, so thankfully we didn't miss much. All right, so without any further delay, here is the interview. We hope you enjoy. I think that people who are really committed to Platonism as a philosophical viewpoint today still need to negotiate how their religious commitments interact with Platonism. It's, it's still a live issue for those of us today who are Platonists because there's a sense in which Platonism inevitably um, occupies this somewhat ambivalent position uh, relative to one's theological commitments. Now, Edward, you—that's a good point because you're 
you're not only a philosopher, but you are, you, I mean, you, you also are a practitioner, isn't that right? I mean, don't, don't you have a pro- Yeah, I've, I've, I've made a point, I've made a point all of my academic career about being open, about being a polytheist, a practicing polytheist. Um, you know, and that was just something that uh, I don't think that I ever really considered not being open about because it just seems inconceivable that I would be doing this, you know, not necessarily wearing it on my sleeve in every kind of setting, but certainly never being anything less than forthcoming about it because I felt very strongly that, you know, um, it's no problem for people to be open about their other kinds of religious commitments. Um, especially when you, you work in, uh, an area of philosophy that's particularly involved with religion, that's had a lot, that's been appropriated in a lot of religious contexts. It's natural then, um, to be relatively open about it. And so why not be open about it as a polytheist? Very cool. And so would you mind, since we've already kind of opened this box, would you mind talking about your personal practice a little bit? Well, my personal practice isn't interesting in and of itself. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> like, I'm not, you know, I, I I hasten to tell people, you know, I'm not a priest of anything. I'm not, you know, I'm just, uh, I, I'm a very conventional sort of practitioner perhaps of in what is in today's world an untraditional religious tradition but there's nothing particularly interesting about about my practice i mean i just do what other pagans do you know i i pray to my gods i i make offerings it's it's really pretty mundane stuff what's the role of meditation in your practice I think that you could see my work as a philosopher, as a kind of a sustained meditation. Right. Um, And I think that um, from a platonic point of view, that would be the way in which one would see it. In fact, Um, that to work in philosophy is a kind of, uh, it's it's something that involves the total human. Uh, it's not something that is merely, in the narrow sense, an intellectual endeavor. It involves the entire soul and spirit. And so I would say that my work really is my meditation, insofar as I have a distinct meditation practice, because... In a strictly religious context, I would say that, you know, I don't distinguish between meditation and prayer. When people speak of theurgy, you know, I mean, that's working with the gods. It's, it's God working. And for me, that entails a kind of meditation in which I'm bringing all that I am to my gods. And so one can see that as like a meditation upon their nature 
but one can also see it as making my nature perspicuous to them, you see. And so one can see it as reciprocal. I'm attempting to understand their nature. And in that very effort, I'm making my nature more intelligible to them. Now, may I interject for a minute? In the Egyptian conception, you know, it's the idea, um, especially in the like the the hermetic expression of it, you know, the cosmos is full of gods and as man is a microcosm of the cosmos. So the gods are also fully present in the human soul. And so would you say that that... Sure, and as Tali says, all things are full of gods. Yeah, yeah. And would you say that in that uh, reciprocal contemplation that you're articulating, that there's also a type of revelation occurring where you're real... the sense of making your contents intelligible to the gods is also perhaps a process of your own perceiving the gods as arising within your own soul? Yes. Um, I would say that there's that element. And also I would say that there's even a further element where in engaging with the gods, we also create a shared work, um, which is which is even a third thing, relatively distinct from their being or from mine, although rooted in both. And so, I would say that there's there's also that in Platonism. You know, I mean, we're very fond of speaking of levels, layers, planes you know, these, these sorts of metaphors. And just as in the encounter with the God in, in theophany, there's a coming to be of the God within my psyche. So too, as I spoke of, there's a certain coming to be of me ontologically in the God And even as a third term, there's a coming to be of something which is a shared work between us. And that's in particular where I think creative work comes in. Intellectual work, like what a philosopher does, or the creative work that an artist or a writer does. That's that's yet a third level or plane or layer of that theophanic experience. Well, that was just well put. I haven't heard, I haven't heard many people describe the process that you're um, expressing so clearly Um, because it, that mutual interpenetration almost does form a third term, which is distinct in itself. Like you said. Well, yeah. And I mean, systematically in Platonism, we could even think of this, Uh, potentially in some contexts, um, as an angelic entity. Um, In Platonism, you know, in in, in the sort of fully worked out systematic Platonism we have after Iamblichus, from every god there depends a series of what Iamblichus calls uh, the genera superior to us, angels, daimons, and heroes. 
And angels are, in effect, the autonomous intelligence of a god. Um, they're, they're, they're emissions, so to speak, or emanations from the, en- the intellect of a deity. They're divine intellects, divinized intellects. Uh, daimones are divinized souls, divinized psyches. Um, and heroes, of course, are divinized mortal bodies. And so when, for instance, a person has a profound theophany and there are certain kinds of intellectual contents that are produced that act as a key to that divine relationship, uh, they can be grasped by a more mundane intellect as well they can function that way as well, but they also function as, in some sense, a key uh, to the persistent recovery of that theophanic experience. Uh, We can speak of that potentially as an angel depending from the series of that deity. A daimon, a, a daimon, a daimon would be uh, would function in different ways because a daimon is psychical. You know, I mean, uh, I would say that, for instance, you know, I mean, a daimon is more present in um, perhaps in a mode of worship that a person develops idiosyncratically or um, uh, in in conjunction with uh, a small group or a larger group, maybe that participate in the same theophany as them uh, and develop a mode of worship, that would be more the daimonic component. But the purely intellectual component, that would be uh, potentially describable at least as angelic. Now, would it be correct to um, say that those angelic intelligences would be called logoi? Potentially, yes. Logos is a concept that functions differently in different philosophers. In the philosophers, in the most developed systematic Platonism that I generally work with in Proclus and Damascius, the role of Logoi is basically the more differentiated aspect of forms. And so, for instance, there's this question in uh, Plato's Parmenides that comes up of you know, are there forms of things like hair, you know? And from a sort of a classic platonic perspective, you know, I mean, there's not even necessarily, and a lot of people are surprised to hear this, but there's not even necessarily, for instance, a form of horse per se. You know, what we know for sure is that there's a form of animal. And this form is particularized in a lot of ways, depending upon the nature of the environment that animals are in. And this is how a certain Platonism can be very comfortable, incidentally, with the kind of evolutionary theory, because it's not actually about reifying every form of every animal. But a fortiori, when we talk about you know, parts of the form of the animal that are just functional adaptations, like an animal having hair so that it can keep warm, for instance, or 
claws so that it can get its food. These are then logoi rather than forms, a day, uh, because these are specifications of the form of animality that are dependent upon the telos of being an animal, which is, you know, to survive as a certain integral form as best and as long as it can. And so that pressure for survival, that's part of the telos of being an animal. And in accord with that, animals have various logoi that determine their their more specific forms, their their particularized forms relative to a certain environment. And so, I mean, of course, logoi is this kind of concept that gets used in a lot of different ways by a lot of different philosophers, but that's like the way it's used in the philosophers that I'm most, you know, that I'm most familiar with and that I resonate with the most, Um, you know, in Stoics and, you know, others, it's a little different. Um, They're all dependent upon the basic sense in Greek, of course, of a logos as like, a kind of, um, in this context, you could say like a kind of recipe for something. Um, Logos means a lot of things. But the philosophically resonant sense kind of comes from logos as like a recipe or formula for something. And so that's like, so to go back to your earlier question, you know, would we consider like an angelic intelligence, like a logos of the deity? In a sense, yes, we could say that, you know, the deity is um, emitting in a particular situation a particularized formula of themselves, which is being received and is effective in souls alive at a certain moment, either literally or metaphorically. And some of this conversation, I think, was covered in the Parmenides, this discussion of, of the forms. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, uh, for uh, for later Platonists, the Parmenides is the ultimate dialogue, because in the Parmenides, we have a kind of a map of um, all of the territory which is covered by Platonic philosophy. Uh, it's It's the most aerial view, so to speak, the bird's eye view that we get of being from any of the platonic dialogues. And that's why in the uh, curriculum that was devised possibly by Iamblichus, the entire course of study culminates in the Parmenides. Now we've been talking about the different beings, the angelic beings, the daimons. Um, can, since we're back on Iamblichus, can you talk about maybe the, the hierarchy and how, how the communication happens? Because, Man can't directly, according to Iamblichus, can't directly uh, contact the ineffable God. There, there has to be a middleman, almost like a Pythagorean mean um, in between. So can you talk about maybe this communication between beings and the hierarchy? My own perspective might be described as a little bit more Proclean than Iamblichian. But, you know, I mean, I think that a lot of what I say would apply for Iamblichus too properly understood. It's not always as easy to understand where Iamblichus is coming from because 
we don't have as much of his work as we would like to. Um, and so, you know, sometimes it's not always clear. And if you look at some of the things that like Aproclus says about Yamblichus, you can almost tell that like, even if we had more of his work, perhaps he wasn't necessarily always speaking in the same kind of very careful uh, uh, systematic terms that, you know, Aproclus is. Aproclus is very systematic. <laughs> yes, he is. Um, which was something that Hegel admired about him, uh, particularly. When we speak about ineffability, I think it's important to understand that gods are ineffable, at least in part, simply because they transcend the categories of the intellect. And this this gets to the whole issue, which I know you wanted to discuss, of gods as henads. What is What it is to be a god is to be an absolutely unique individual. And this entails a certain ineffability. If we understand by the converse of ineffability, the ability to express things completely adequately through forms. And forms, as we know, are always iterable. They're always repeatable. And so if the very nature of a god is to be unique and unrepeatable, then there is going to be, by definition, something ineffable about them. And so I think that a lot of times we've been conditioned by uh, a kind of role that ineffability has played in uh, monotheist mysticism, where it's simply an outside of intellect. There's intellect, and then there's just what's outside, and that's the ineffable. In the context of these Platonic philosophers, I think that ineffability has a more determinate sense, and that pertains particularly to the status of absolutely unique individuals. That's very interesting. And in, in your writing and in the writings of Proclus, this uniqueness is really critical, um, it seems. I mean, it's yes. stressed over and over. Is it idiotes? I don't know how to pronounce uh, the word. Yes, uh, the, the, the term that's, that's used that becomes uh, an important technical term in Proclus and in the subsequent uh, philosophers in the tradition of Athenian Neoplatonism is idiotes, which is difficult to translate into English. The most accurate translation etymologically would be peculiarity. But that has a sound to us that means, that has a connotation to us in contemporary English of something strange or weird, um, which is interesting in itself because it charts the path of the history of ideas in a certain in a certain direction um, it refers to positive individuation positive individuality and the reason why i stress positive is that 
our English term individuality, you can see that the very form of it is negative. It refers to a certain indivisibility. And so it answers to what in Greek is uh, atomos, um, un, literally uncuttable. And that's where we get our term atom from. But we don't really have a very good term in English for positive individuation. It's almost as though in our contemporary language, the dictum of Spinoza's that all determination is negation uh, has been taken up into the very language itself. And that's the notion that individuality only comes about by being differentiated from everything else. And so it's a kind of holistic determination, uh, which is certainly there in Platonism. However, there is also positive individuation. And positive individuation, idiotes, is primarily exemplified in the gods. And this is why the gods are henads, Henads from hen, one. And so henad means very similarly to the English unit. They are units. They are absolutely unique ones, each one. Uh, and everything about the power of the gods and the operation of the gods in Platonic thought can ultimately be unpacked from this single fact about them. Okay, yeah, I definitely want to go deeper into the Henad idea. Um, but I, I couldn't help but notice, and I, I read a few of your papers before the interview, and, and one of them was um, the paper on Hecate, and we can get deeper into Hecate later, but one of the... Uh, Similarities I found with this idea was the idea of the uh, paternal token of the soul, which also was this very um, stressed this idea of uniqueness of the individual soul. And it really reminded me of this um, idiotes in, in some of the other yeah. writings. It's just this individuality is very important, it seems. Yes. Um, yeah. In, um, in that, that, in that essay about Hecate, because I'm talking about the Chaldean oracles, there's a good deal of discussion of, you know, these, what are called tokens, uh, synthemata. And you could say that in a sense, these are for uh, beings such as ourselves, somewhat the equivalent, uh, or at least at any rate, the corresponding term to the idiotes of the God, because it's how we participate, the idiotes of the God, uh, which is a particular token that we can particularly, peculiarly, I should say, grasp as the irreducibly unique existential being that we are, and through it participate in the series of some god. Uh, participate peculiarly in the way appropriate to us, that god. Um, 
because there's much about us which, of course, isn't unique. Um, we are humans and we have a great deal in common as humans. There are all kinds of other sources of commonality, which are principles that we participate as beings. These are principles that the gods do not participate, they produce. And so the gods produce the principles of being that we participate. Um, But what we find in theurgy is that there's more than one kind of participation. There is a way of participating qua beings. There is a way of participating qua something unique. And this is uh, the role, I would say, of so-called tokens, as opposed to the elements of forms that we participate qua beings. And so, for instance, participating in the form of humanity, the virtues and duties and demands and problems that are uh, expressive of what we call the human condition. That's one kind of participation. Another kind of participation is as the peculiar individual that I am with the peculiar history that I have, the peculiar potential that I have to participate in a certain God in a certain way that perhaps nobody else can. That's the role of what are called tokens, I would say. Interesting. And Janice, I would love for you to jump in here, but um, can you go a little bit deeper maybe into this idea of um, the procession from the Henads um, to being? Okay. The, as I said, everything about how the gods operate from a platonic perspective can be understood from the basic fact of them as being the primary units, um, which is to say the absolutely unique units. Being members of that set of primary units, um, you could say the metaphysical atoms in a sense, of the Platonic universe. In expressing their relation to one another, they externalize everything about themselves which is potentially shareable. And that becomes, so to speak, the infrastructure of being. That becomes what in uh, simplistic uh, presentations of the Platonic system, that becomes the chain of hypostasy, the sort of uh, ladder. You know, we see these diagrams in books. At the top, there's the one, then there's being, then if they're being uh, particularly detailed, there's life, there's intellect, there's soul, there's nature. These are all really, let's say, 
metastable identifications of potentially shareable moments within the the henatic manifold, within the multiplicity of gods, qua gods. They're prior to being in themselves. They're prior to either being or non-being. And this is why, from a Platonic point of view, it doesn't really make sense to ask whether a god exists or not. Because their nature is prior to that. They simply are who they are prior to anything we might ask about what they are. But the structure of being, qua being, is the structure of whatness. You know, in, 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 we get this already in Aristotle, the notion that there's something we've come to call essence which is a kind of reified term. But in Aristotle, the original term, which is at the root of our English term essence, which comes through the Latin, it's ultimately totia and ani, what it was for something to be something. And so the gods from out of an experience among themselves of what it is to be a god, not who, but what now, produce being as every kind of conceivable whatness. And that's the infrastructure of being. And that's how it's produced from the who-ness, the personhood of the gods as supra-essential, as prior to being, as prior to whatness. And what's prior to whatness? Whoness. So I think, would you say it's, would you say it would be uh, useful or maybe accurate to also, you could almost say that this is the, the, the process of unfoldment from inter- pure interiority into manifestation? I think that that's, that, I think that um, interiority is a term that we would use with respect to souls. But I think that, yes, there's an analogy. You know, I mean, one of the fundamental concepts of Platonism, um, which gets absorbed into some later forms of thought, you know, like Thomism, for instance, um, they speak of the analogia entis, the the analogy of being. Um, I think that we can speak of a process with respect to psychical interiority, which is analogous to that process within the gods, which produces being. Um, We need to understand the limits of that analogy as well as the potential of it. But yeah, that's, that's a valid analogy to this process of emanation. And that's essential to our ability to be um, real psychical agents, to be real agents on the level of our souls. That's exactly what I was about to ask you too, is, is, that, um, is that analogical 
um, sort of sympathy, also demiurgic in its function um, through the soul's actions in in the world of multiplicity. Yes, absolutely. Um, the fully actualized soul, from a Platonic perspective, becomes a kind of a uh, cooperating junior partner, so to speak, with the gods in bringing order to the cosmos. Uh, And so when we bring order to our inner psychic cosmos, we are cooperating in the gods' own cosmogonic work. We're cooperating in that labor of demiurgy. That's, That's... something that is, uh, I think, really central to the Platonic perspective. And and Platonists believe that it was also inherent in the actual theologies of all of these traditions that they were in contact with, because um, there's a fragment of Iamblichus, a fragment from his commentary on the De Anima of Aristotle, where he uh, speaks of this, he speaks of this notion that the fully actualized soul uh, assists the gods in their their demiurgic labor. And he specifically uh, characterizes this as being uh, the perspective of the ancients. Hoi palaioi. By which he means that this is something that is not just a philosophical perspective, but this is something that properly understood is inherent in the theological traditions themselves. And, and by implication, if at least a portion of humanity has a divine origin, it would almost be the um, responsibility of, of, the, of the human being aware of its nature and origin to, to to participate. And by doing that, it seems as though you're fully then participating in your series and enacting the process of reversion. Sure, sure. And I mean, I would say all humans and indeed all beings participate in this process. Where humans might be different is that we have a certain degree of play within our nature to where we can play a more active or a more passive role in this labor. We can be, so to speak, um, more directly engaged or more indirectly engaged in it. And this goes back to something that Plato himself spoke of in the laws, where he speaks of the gods having an easy method of administering the cosmos, um, which takes a lot of the trouble off of their shoulders, which the essence of it is basically the principle of birds of a feather, which is that, you know, beings will tend to um, associate with those that are, that are like them And so, for instance, people who are virtuous will tend to associate with one another 
and help one another to actually do more in the world, to be more effective in the world for good. Whereas people who are less virtuous will tend to also associate with one another, but they'll tend to diminish their own mutual effectiveness. Um, Because, you know, and Aristotle also talks about this, you know, um, the notion of uh, the lack of honor among thieves. You know, they will tend to undermine one another's effectiveness through backbiting and not being able to trust one another, and, you know, betraying one another and so forth, you know. And so all that you have to do, according to Plato, to administer the cosmos in a kind of an easy way is to let birds of a feather flock together and let people who are good intensify each other's ability to do good and let people who are bad diminish each other's effectiveness. It seems like the idea of like attracts like is appropriate. Yeah. Yes. uh, Which is a very basic, a very basic cosmological principle, of course, in Hellenic thought and in the thought of many other, uh, many other civilizations. Now in this topic that we've been just talking about, that was a really interesting point, Janice. Um, what do you see as the role of daimons in this? Um, we just talked to Professor Shaw, and it seems as though the diamonds, daimons have a pretty integral uh, part of this kind of playing out of our, our demiurgic tendencies. From the perspective of the, I keep saying this, this the fully worked out systematic Platonism that we get, and it's most elaborated form from from Proclus and Damascius. You know, we're engaging with the gods on all of these different levels. You know, it's not that we're only engaging with the gods on the level that's that's closest to us. Some part of ourselves is engaging with them on all of these different levels. And so in order to fully actualize our potential uh, as, as, as the kind of agents that we can be in the cosmos, we have to cooperate with daimones, with heroes, with um, you know, other kinds of entities that aren't as clearly described by Platonists, such as nymphs. Uh, we have to operate to the degree that we can through the divine intelligences that angels are. And we also have to participate in as many divine series, the series of as many gods as it is within our nature to do. Uh, And so, you know, we have to do all of these kinds of things. If we're really going to actualize our full potential, we, we don't really know what we're capable of. We don't really know the full extent um, because it uh, it tapers off into in in into uh, what we can no longer perceive. Uh, but we have to work through all of these intermediary agencies, and we also have to, to the degree possible. You know, we have to resonate with as many gods as we have some sort of inherent harmony with. 
in ourselves. Janice, do you have to, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I just want to mention I'm really on board with the concept of participating with the nymphs. That's that's a nice. I like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, to unpack something like that a little. I mean, um, it seems as though nymphi are um, spirits who are particularly associated with a certain place. And so when one speaks of, you know, participating in the nymphi of a certain divine series, we could unpack that a bit and say that, well, you know, you're a worshiper of a certain deity. Um, Let's see how the worship of that deity might be particularized for the place in which you are. That would be how we might get to participating in the nymphi. And the question was about, uh, was, the question was asked originally about Daimones. You know, with Daimones, we'd be asking, you know, what is the kind of mode of worship? Because Daimonai, uh, Daimones are psychical. And so the psyche, the soul, it's an entity inherently in time. And so we would ask, what is the kind of mode of worship in time? What is the temporality appropriate to a particular deity? You know, I'm, I'm a worshiper of a certain deity. What is the temporality peculiar to that deity that I can resonate with, that I can participate in? That's what we mean when we say, you know, is there is there a daimon in the series of that deity that I can participate in? This is a very technical, systematic way of articulating that kind of more basic understanding. That that's fascinating. Whenever somebody establishes a mode of worship for a deity, um, you know, I mean. You know, pagans talk about uh, uh, their UPG, unverified personal gnosis, which is a very uh, a, a very cute term, but it you know it refers often to these kinds of senses that a person gets about maybe certain kinds of offerings to make to a deity or certain kinds of ways of doing things, maybe even certain holidays to celebrate for a deity. You know, just ways of doing things which are ways of being in time, ways of patterning your temporal being in accord with, in recognition of this deity. And we could understand this developing this kind of mode of worship as a daimon of that God series that we are participating in, that we are developing a relationship with, or that even in some sense is coming to be in our mode of worship. But that's a little bit more complicated in terms of, uh, uh, the temporal origination of daimones versus um, their uh, their eternal being, uh, which is 
you know, somewhat of a different question. As an aside, um, I think it's of note, uh, backtracking a little bit to the point about the nymphs, that in the Mithraic Mysteries, uh, nymph is one of the grades of initiation. Ah. And those those grades do seem to be aligned with the, you know, the seven, seven planetary powers of the cosmos. Mm-hmm. I'm not an authority on Mithraism by any means. Um, the, uh, the order corresponding to the Nymphi, um, would this be the order corresponding to Earth in, um, in, in, in that system? See, in my, in my opinion, it relates more to Aphrodite because one of the symbols, I believe, is a mirror and another, I think, is a girdle. I, I might be a little off there, but the symbols are very Venusian. They're very well. I mean, um, I mean, with the mirror, you know, you have to you have to always remember that you're talking then about the externalization of something that's an image, um, and the kind of limited autonomy that it can have. And so, just like we were talking about the gods externalizing parts of themselves and rendering them semi-autonomous in order to produce the structure of being. So too, by analogy, in the individual soul, there's this process that can be represented by the symbol of the mirror, um, this process of, for instance, producing a particular mortal life because I mean, from a platonic perspective, of course, you know, very central to platonic thought is reincarnation, metempsychosis. Uh, And therefore the process by which I, as something wider than this particular instantiation of my will how is it that I produce this more narrow instantiation of myself in accord with what imperatives, in accord with what goals do I produce this limited mortal being? And this goes to the question, somewhat stereotypical, you know, why are we here? Why is one here? Uh, what is one here to do? Um, this is symbolized in the kind of image of producing a reflection, a reflection ultimately of the will. You know, it's a choice to come into the body each time. And we make that choice in accord with certain kinds of goals. You know, we're trying to do something. And, um, you know, this is the way that we need to unpack symbols like that and to bring them back to the most urgent existential questions of our own being. Cool. Um, Switching gears a little bit, um, would you mind elaborating on the idea of beauty um, specifically, I was reading through your your Hecate, once again, um, paper, and I came across this a few times, and I'm going to quote what you had written. Um, 
souls through striving for things that are beautiful to them return to the God they worship, something that has proceeded primordially from the God. And then um, the symbols sown by the paternal intellect in accord with the nature of the paternal plane of action are significant relative to each unique individual. Hence, they act through the experience of beauty, the most subjective of perceptions in this way, illuminating a path specific to each soul. So what role does beauty play in all of this? Well, this is something that I elaborate actually a lot more in um, a paper I wrote called uh, Plato's Gods and the Ways of uh, and the Way of Ideas, uh, which, which is about the Phaedrus and the Symposium, uh, because that's where these ideas ultimately come from. Um, this notion of beauty as that which reaches furthest down so to speak, to use these kinds of spatial metaphors, furthest down in the procession of being, because we have both a very naive and therefore non-intellectual, therefore ultimately in its origin pre-intellectual experience of beauty, Uh, but also we have a very idiosyncratic experience of beauty. And that also tips us off that it has its roots in the higher principle, in the principle of unity, that is the principle of individuality, the principle of individuation, the first principle, what's called the one itself. And so um, there's an axiom in uh, later Platonic thought, it's articulated by later Platonists, but I think it's really faithful to the deepest uh, strains in Plato's own thought and even that of, of, of thinkers prior to him. This notion that the higher a principle is, the further down its effects reach. And so in this sense, we bind together the top of the procession and the bottom, if we have to use these hierarchical metaphors, And we can also break out of hierarchical metaphors and instead use metaphors of center and periphery, for instance. But we're going to use those hierarchical metaphors. We bind together the top and the bottom of the procession by understanding that the higher principles also act further down than the ones that come after them. And so beauty is particularly useful in this respect because we can see that everybody has an experience of beauty. Everybody finds something beautiful, and in many ways it's idiosyncratic to them. In other ways, it's shared by by people, certain kinds of broad tendencies. Um, But it has this unique ability of all of the kinds of principles that we see active around us of binding together the very high reaches of the procession and the very low or the very furthest reaches of the procession. And that kind of gets into the Platonic Eros, right? Yes. Yes. Eros has this kind of vital role, and this is something that you get in Plato's Symposium primarily, of conducting us up and also conducting other principles down. Uh, And in general, operating this kind of uh, this kind of two-way road, so to speak, 
within the procession of being um, that has at its center the different experiences of beauty that are constitutive of different planes of being. And so at every plane of being, there's an experience of beauty that is constitutive of that plane of being. You know, the plane of uh, embodied being is constituted by a certain experience of beauty that is uh, delivered through the physical senses and that is experienced entirely through the body. And, you know, uh, uh, this, is, this, this is a certain kind of uh, a sense of what's beautiful and a sense of what it is to experience beauty. And that goes all the way up to an experience of beauty, which is among the gods themselves, and which is actually generative of being itself, as we see when gods, through the power of Eros, uh, bring other gods to birth. Now, I mean, gods are in themselves qua supra-essential beings, prior to being itself, they don't come to be at a certain point. So what does it mean when gods get together and they give birth to other gods? What that means is that a certain god operates in the cosmos through the relational experience of those other two gods, you see. Uh, And that is in part dependent upon the experience of beauty being felt between those two gods and providing an opening for a third god to act in the cosmos through that experience. And so, you know, when, uh, when Zeus and Leto experience one another's beauty, this provides an opportunity, this provides a locus, let's say, in the cosmos, in the procession of being, for Apollo and Artemis to manifest themselves in the space created by that experience of beauty between Zeus and Leto. So you could almost say that in the as a result of the interpenetration of Zeus and Leto, there's a there's an arising of of um, Apollo and Artemis as, as almost a, as a natural function uh, of the conjunction. It's like that intersubjective experience between Zeus and Leto is a door in the cosmos. It's It's a moment in being that beings can participate. And therefore, it's an opportunity for Apollo and Artemis to act within being. Now, that leads us nicely into another point we wanted to try and touch on with you, which is um, you wrote a paper, which you kindly shared with me at one point, on Zeus uh, as the noose. And I think that it's it's a very it, it was pro- one of the most profound things I've ever written not read on the subject, and I was hoping you might be willing to uh, elaborate a little bit on that concept uh, because especially because uh, for some reason there seems to be this popular uh, popular 
inclination to vulgarize Zeus and um, to attribute to him this, um, you know, very common almost sense of personality. And I think that it's because people don't have the opportunity to 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 understand the you know really the essence of what you articulate there. I mean, what what is what is Zeus and and how exactly is Zeus that that cosmic Newt? Well, um, Noah's is is simply in Greek um, mind, or we usually translate it in a Platonic context as intellect. And within the Hellenic theology, Zeus as king of the gods, Basileus Tomtheon, is essentially operating the intellectual order, the intellective organization of the cosmos. This is the sense that it has that there's a sovereignty which is passed down uh, from Uranus to Kronos to Zeus. This sovereignty is essentially the opportunity, let's say, to intellectually organize things, to give order to the cosmos. And so if we think of the different divine sovereigns in Hellenic theology, we could think of them all as operating their sovereignty concurrently. But the message of Hellenic theology is that the sovereignty of Zeus, the sovereignty exercised by him, the kind of organization promoted by him in the cosmos is the one which is ultimately the most stable, the most durable, and has the widest reach, wider than that of Uranus, of Kronos, more durable in some sense, allowing more opportunities for manifestation. Because the overall principle of the procession of being is providing the opportunity for the greatest diversity of things that can possibly instantiate themselves to express themselves, to come forth. And the reign of Zeus as the king of Olympus is what permits the greatest possible manifestation of diverse ways of being to manifest itself. And so this is what we need to bear in mind as a kind of um, an interpretive thread. When we read the myths about Zeus, how it is that he's creating this more flexible, more stable uh, order, which provides the proper the opportunity for more kinds of things to manifest the agency and the causality, which is peculiar to them. Uh, and so, for instance, in uh, you know in uh, Hesiod's Theogony. 
he speaks of the role of persuasion in Zeus's reign. Zeus doesn't coerce nearly as often as he persuades. And persuasion, of course, it leaves space for different beings to be what they are and to act how they act in the way that's proper to them, that's appropriate to them. It leaves that space. By the same token, when we see uh, Zeus uh, engaged in uh, all of these uh, erotic pursuits, we shouldn't see this just in a kind of a base anthropomorphic sense as philandering Zeus, but rather that this is a way of, again, allowing many different kinds of principles to come forth that aren't immediately under his control. Because when he, uh, uh, you know, when he fathers children, they're not entirely under his control. That's power that he's seeding. He has a more durable kind of leadership because he lets power leave his hands and he allows spaces to be opened that uh, uh, in which other, other gods and uh, entities below the level of the divine as well can exercise their own agency. And so in a sense, the virility of the paternal intellect is symbolic of what you just described then it's it's in it's in the immense life-giving power and and uh creative power of him that he's able to seed you know he's able to sow these seeds of intellect in the forms and yet continue to act as a fountain and and i I think in that paper you actually uh addressed that idea of the fountain yeah it's the power that the power that he lets go it's the power that he lets go which actually ensures the stability of his power in a broader sense that's one of the primary lessons of hellenic theology different theologies have different things to teach us one of the prime lessons of hellenic theology it seems is about the greater stability of forms of power that devolve power, that somewhat uh, paradoxically, perhaps, you retain more power by devolving more power, you see. And we can see how this is also manifest in the social sphere of Hellenic society through the development of institutions of the polis, institutions like democracy, institutions like, um, you know, trial by jury, all of these kinds of things, um, which are particularly under the provenance of Athena. These all have these deep roots in Hellenic theology and the kind of lesson about devolving power in order to secure power.
so in a sense the distribution of the power is also a consolidation of the power and a manifestation of that power that establishes a form that enables the flow of power to continue to occur and the activity of the power yes it's awfully clever <laughs> it's awfully clever zeus is extremely zeus is an extremely clever god so edward can we relate this back to how the henets are um how do they relate to the one? All right. Well, yeah, this is something which is which is chronically misunderstood. Which is why you're the guy to talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's 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 good that we should get it in before we have to stop. Um, you know, I mean, the most important thing to understand about the one is what is said uh, about the one at the culmination of the first hypothesis, as it's called, of Plato's Parmenides which is that the one itself neither is nor is one. There is no such thing as the one itself. The one itself is simply the principle of individuation. It's the principle by which each thing is one thing. That's how it works. That's what it does. The role of Platonic principles is exhausted by what they do. It's not a question of, you know, what they do, and then there's something beyond that. Because when we talk about principles, we're not talking about gods. You know, gods have a certain kind of abyssal quality, a kind of a bottomless quality in this supra-essential uniqueness of each of them. All of being is contained in each God. But when we talk about principles, archai in Greek, this is something much more determinate. Each principle does exactly what it says it does. You know, uh, Noah's is the principle of intellect. It is exhausted by the nature of intellect. It is exhausted by what intellect is. The one, as a principle, is exhausted by what it is for a thing to be one thing. This is the sense of one in the one itself. It's the sense of something being countable. One. What do you mean by exhausted? Exhausted by? By exhausted, I mean there's nothing more to it than that. Okay. And so the one is the principle of individuation. It's that by which each thing is one thing. Now, that's not an atomizing principle because that also includes things, the nature of which in their own unity is to encompass many things, things which are universal in themselves. Each of them is also one thing all the way up to being, which encompasses everything that in any way, shape, or form is, is also one thing. But the contribution of the one to each of those things is that each of those things is one thing. And when I say it's exhausted by that, I mean that there's nothing more to it than that. Now, what gives the one something more, something inexhaustible, is when we recognize that the primary activity of individuation 
before anything else, ontologically speaking, not temporally, but ontologically speaking, before anything else, is to produce this set of absolutely unique individuals who are the gods themselves. And in that sense, there is an abyssal quality to the one because the one is each god. But it has that kind of quality, that quality which transcends being a principle in its identity with each God, not as something other than them, not as something encompassing all of them, not as something other than all of them. That's, that's not the point. That aspect of the one has to do with each God being ineffable in him or herself. That's where that kind of bottomless quality comes from. And so that's where, that's where that kind of mystical experience goes. It goes to each God. I'm really excited to have heard that uh, explanation. That was really very interesting. There was something just inherently mystical about even just listening to you say that. I almost felt like I was seeing it. It's hard to explain. I don't. Yeah. How long, how long did it take you to, to get this, Edward, or to get that idea on a practical level? I mean, you know, I've been unpacking the significance of that kind of basic insight for, for you know, more than 20 years now. But, I mean, it was something that came to me, I think, um, in Nuce, uh, ab ovo, so to speak. Um, when I first began reading Proclus, uh, which, you know, was actually even um, just before I started taking courses in philosophy as uh, a master's student, uh, I remember the summer before I was going to start my uh, master's coursework in philosophy, um, reading Proclus's Elements of Theology and realizing that what was being said there about the one itself was something much different than what the secondary literature was suggesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that... I had a certain sense, particularly then when I read his commentary on the Parmenides and a certain particular passage there that I've quoted frequently in my work, um, I had a certain insight, uh, a kind of an intuition of the structure of uh, the Hanatic Manifold, the structure of the multiplicity of the gods. Uh, as being all in each, and therefore not requiring some other in which they all work. And so it was the kind of basic insight of all in each as opposed to all in one. The difference between those formal structures, that was what got me on the trail, so to speak, what got me on the hunt. Mm. and that I then unpacked 
through all of my work on Proclus and, and, and the significance of which I'm continuing to unpack and everything that I've done subsequently. And what would you recommend people um, read as far as Proclus? I, you know, I mean, it, I think that um, it is good, I think, for people to just dive into the primary texts themselves and not to depend upon, uh, you know, secondary texts, because I think that ultimately you can't, uh, you know, if you're talking about any philosopher, you can't, you can't engage with philosophy that way, you know, to even understand what a philosopher is saying, you have to, in some sense, begin even just with baby steps to do philosophy yourself. You know, you can only understand philosophy as a philosopher, even if only a baby philosopher. And I think that that's something that is um, uh, specific to philosophy as um, as a profession and as a way of life, and as you could even say a way of being, is that to even understand it, you have to kind of do it. So you have to dive into the primary texts. Now, that being said, it's not all that easy. Uh, the most accessible text of Proclus is, is the elements of theology. Um, okay. You know, I mean... Ultimately, you want to also read the Platonic theology, um, which in some sense, at least in terms of his surviving works, is kind of his magnum opus. But that's daunting. You know, I hope that in my own work, I've provided, and this has been my effort, you know, to provide to people resources to read Proclus themselves, you know, or at any rate to kind of like do philosophy in his manner, in his style, um, but not to replace that. But that's what I've tried to do with my own work is to at least make that a little bit easier. And people often find my work forbiddingly dense, but I mean, in some ways, I think it does at least provide some resources that help one to get past the surface uh, when reading Proclus's own texts. If somebody finds your work forbiddingly dense or Proclus for that matter, in my opinion, it just represents a sort of intellectual laziness or inertia that if they really want to be able to experience this in a genuine way, they need to, tri they need to triumph over well, I think that, you know, I mean, people, um, people who are destined to be philosophers, and there are a lot more philosophers than become famous as philosophers, you know, like I say, to even understand any philosopher uh, on a deep level is to be a philosopher oneself. People who are destined to be philosophers, I think they feel a certain hunger. And they don't mind that something is complicated. They say, yes, you know, I want it to be as complicated as it could be because I want to know that I'm really getting to the depths of it, that I'm really opening this up. I'm really engaging with the problems. And so people for whom that's their path, 
I think that they have a certain hunger for it and they don't mind if something is complex. They don't mind if it's complicated because they know that being is complicated. You know, things are complicated. The world is complicated. And so, you know, something that's too simple, it probably has a degree of simplification that means that it's only good for one thing or for a small number of things. You know, it's a very specialized tool. Whereas something that is resonating with a wider spectrum of being is going to be complicated. It's going to be complicated. I, I do have to get going fairly soon, but I was hoping that um, we could touch on, at least touch on Hec- Hecate or Hecate. <laughs> I, I just, I was really kind of hungering for to hear your, you know, your, your thoughts on. Hey man, I don't know what to say. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm looking at a statue of Hecate right now. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't claim to be I wouldn't claim to be an authority or some kind of advanced devotee of Hecate. Um, in that in that essay that I wrote which appeared originally in the Bibliotheca Alexandrina devotional volume uh, dedicated to Hecate, and which will be reprinted uh, when I come out with a collection of of my various essays uh, that have appeared in uh, Hellenic devotional volumes, which is something I'm going to be coming out with soon. Um, I was concerned to mainly deal with Hecate as the primary deity in the Chaldean oracles um, and to try to make the case, first of all, that um, as the only apparently named deity in the oracles, that she really is the primary actor in them. Um, and then to elucidate as much as I could about what she's doing there to the degree that we can say, of course, because the text is highly fragmentary. And so it's very speculative. And that's a very speculative piece. It was the first piece, actually, that I wrote for a devotional volume. And I think that um, because I read it over again uh, yesterday, because you told me that you might want to talk about it. I think that what I felt reading it again was that um, I kind of felt that feeling that I felt when I wrote it of that kind of uh, freedom, that writing for a devotional volume, you know, I could be as speculative as I wanted to be. And, and I, could, I could sort of pursue these matters to uh, a degree that would be problematic if um, I was trying to publish this in a strictly academic venue. Um, and so I think that that piece in some ways is a kind of, um, a kind of a love letter to Hecate and an expression of, um, a very personal kind of experience that I had had reading, uh, the Oracle fragments, um, way back when I, I picked them up, uh, in the form of a pamphlet. I think the translation was by, um, Westcott. 
um, they sold them in the form of a pamphlet at Magical Child, which was a, a venerable occult bookstore here in New York City um, for a number of years. Uh, sadly, it's been gone a long time now. But I remembered uh, picking up that pamphlet of the fragments of the Chaldean oracles and being uh, just struck at first on a very uh, pre-intellectual level uh, by these extraordinary images of um, uh, whirling uh, turbulences of, of, of fire and this kind of powerful uh, psychical experience that seemed to be described in them. Um, but I didn't have the tools to understand what was going on there for a very long time because it was only after I had studied all of this technical Platonism that I was in a position to begin to open that stuff up intellectually even a little bit. And so that essay, I mean, I feel like is really just, you know, as, you know, uh, just a small expression really of, having come a certain way in terms of being able to understand maybe what's, what's being expressed in, in that text. Do you feel as though your understanding of Hecate has um, evolved quite a bit since then? Cause it's been a few years since that paper came out. I'm a slow student, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I, I do things slowly. Um, I don't think that I would necessarily claim that I've learned a great deal since then, but I mean, I think that the Chaldean oracles, such as we possess them, is a very profound expression, a very profound Hecatean theophany. I think that contrary to what certain other commentators would say about these texts that the Chaldean oracles, in my opinion, are a fundamentally Hecatean theophany. They are fundamentally a revelation from Hecate. Um, And as such, I mean, I'm not sure that anybody can claim to really have that good a grasp of them because they're so fragmentary, but also because, I mean, obviously the goal is, the goal of them is very lofty. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I'm not doing such a good job that I could claim to be all kinds of far along with that project. But, you know, as far as I get, Hecate is, is helping. Well, so what, let me ask you this. What would you, maybe as my final question on my end, what would, could you just speak briefly on the Yunges, Sinoches, and Teletarchi? Oh, yeah, a minor question. There. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not going to be able to say very much. I mean, these are, these are terms that are specific to the system of the Chaldean oracles. Um, within the Platonic system, 
they are principles that are operative on the psychical level. They um, connect the psyche with the intellect. And so they are in various different ways operating the kind of junction, let's say, between um, psychical being and intellectual being. Now, I mean, let's try to unpack that a little bit. Psychical being, it's the being of a soul, you know, that's, that's, that's born and lives a certain way amongst certain people, has certain kinds of experiences in time, and eventually passes on. Intellectual being is something which is eternal, which is formal, and which is more widely participable. Uh, more widely able to be participated in by different kinds of souls at different times in different places. Uh, it doesn't require the kind of uh, personal touch, so to speak. You can participate in my psychical being only by knowing me. You know, you have to kind of be in the, uh, you know, you have to be in my way of being. You have to be traveling that temporal road with me somehow uh, for some, some part of the way. But you can participate in intellectual being somehow more widely. And these various kinds of entities that, that you named, um, Jungays, or you know, we could anglicize it and say Jinxes, um, Teletarchi, so forth, these are, these are entities that we can't say very much about their specific operation because it's just coming about in fragments of the oracles, which, um, you know, we can just piece together to a minimal degree. But from what the Platonists say about them, you know, it's obvious that this is where they fit into the system, is that they fit into the system in various ways at this kind of juncture between psychical being and intellectual being. So that's basically what I could say about them without doing a whole lot more research and a whole lot more uh, 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 work of various kinds. And that's basically what I could say. Your jinx is your, jinx is your own. That's, that's basically, you know, <laughs> your jinx is your own. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I, I have more questions, but I think this is a good time to wrap it up. Um, we've gone on for quite a while. If you'd be interested in the future to come back, we would. It would be our pleasure to have you. It would be um, well, maybe so. We would be honored. Yeah, it's been, it's, it's been fun. So, Janice, before we go, any more questions about uh, nymphs? <laughs> Are you good on that? <laughs> I have many. I have many, many questions that go very deep, but about, especially about that topic. But no, I just want to say thank you again. Uh, we're really humbled and honored that you agreed to talk with us and. We hope that you felt that our questions were adequate and intellectually stimulating. Oh, more than adequate. Good, good. Oh, man. I, I know I learned a lot tonight. I mean, I felt... Thank you. I, I was... I, I loved every single second of this. <laughs> Thank you. I enjoyed it. It's not too often that you can have these kind of... At least, you know, in our mundane lives, you can have these types of conversations at this level. So, yeah. Very much appreciated. That's great. Thank you.
All right. So do you want to, um, so what's going on with you? It sounds like you have a book coming out. Um, where can people find you? Uh, oh, well, uh, people can find out um, everything about my work at uh, my site, which is henadology.wordpress.com. That's H-E-N-A-D-O-L-O-G-Y dot wordpress.com. Um, there you can find all of the work that I can share freely in that medium. and. Um, you know, constantly updated with information about whatever new is coming out. Um, I am going to be coming out with um, a couple of new books, um, you know, um, collections of uh, pre-existing material together with new material. I always try when I come out with a book, you know, to have something, something new, something that, you know, hasn't appeared before. Um, and so, you know, people will find out about those things as they come out on henodology.wordpress.com. Okay. That's great. Well, thanks a lot, uh, guys. I got to hide off. I got to hop off here, but, um, this was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. And, uh, you know, I, I gained so much from it. I'm so grateful. And thank you again. Yep. Thanks, Edward. Thank you. All right. Good night. Good night. Okay, another great interview. It's been really fun doing this. Having a podcast is a really great way to talk to some truly fascinating individuals. If Iamblichus and Proclus were countries, then I feel like over the past two episodes we've talked to their ambassadors. And maybe that's a stupid analogy, but I don't care because it's 12.30 in the morning, so I'm going to just leave that in there. Make sure to check out Edward at henadology or henadology.wordpress.com as well as on academia.edu and on Amazon. As for us, we are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube, among other places. Please subscribe at those locations and leave a review. And finally, we are on Facebook, of course. That's the best place to contact us. Give us a like over there. We appreciate all of the support. Moving forward, we will be taking a hiatus from Platonism and will be moving into the realm of astrological magic. We have some really excellent guests lined up and you will not be disappointed. Okay, that is all for now. We hope you enjoyed it and we will see you next time. 